0: stand and greet somebody close to you that you haven't maybe said hi to yet today as we continue on in our service this morning As you find your seats this morning, we continue to uh, walk through the story that uh, God has given us. The the story of His His story continues through the scriptures, and we go from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. and And we're excited about what what we have learned, and we're continuing to learn today. And I'm just kind of curious: how many of when I just said what I said? about greet someone who you haven't seen yet today. How, much, how many of you, that's, that's kind of difficult to do? To go up to a perfect stranger and introduce yourself, how many of you find that a little bit difficult? Okay. How many of you yeah, that's my ballpark. I like that kind of stuff. <laughs> how many? Okay. Got some party animals in the building. Okay. All right. Got that. All right. The truth is, when you go to introduce yourself, sometimes that can be a, a rather, it can be a difficult thing. For some, it is not as hard as others to go up and say, hello, my name is, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to put, because someone told me, I, I gave the Cubs such a hard time, I've got to say, go Cubs go, and I'm going to put that on my chest, okay? <laughs> You'll only see this once in your lifetime, so just taking, <laughs> oh, wouldn't it be a joke if I couldn't get this stuck? Oh, I can't get it off, wouldn't it be horrible? Okay. Hello, my name is go Cubs go, all right? I'm putting it right there. Okay. <laughs> got to give you kudos. But anyway, so, so let's... Let's say that's a tough thing. Sometimes you introduce yourself. Hello, my name is, all right? And, and, you, and you shake your hand and you introduce yourself. That's one thing. And, and sometimes that's a little difficult. What's even more difficult is when you have to take the next step. And most of us are, we're, we've got kind of good, we're polite enough to say hi to somebody, but then to kind of share who we are. To say, okay, my name is, and here's where I'm from. This is what I like to do. I like, you know, strolls along the beach, you know, all those kind of things. I'm, I'm a sunset kind of a guy. Whatever the purpose is, you, you start to share a little bit more of yourself. Maybe you're in a life group or you're in some kind of a, a setting where now it's talking more than just your name. You're, now you're talking a little bit about and you're being honest about who you are. And that gets even harder for most of us. To truly introduce yourself in such a way where people start to realize who you are, what kind of a person you are, that takes it to a whole nother level. Do you understand that what God is doing, especially in these opening pages of the scripture, is he's literally introducing himself to us. And in a very special sense, he wants to introduce himself to his people who have been for years slaves in this place called Egypt. We talked about last week how they were delivered and the great, the, the great victory that was when they came out, and all the, that, that was the, the Passover that secured that, and all the, that was wonderful stuff. But do you understand that those people, even though they were his people by definition, they didn't, well, many of them didn't really understand who he was? Let me share you a couple of verses. Let's just kind of pick up the story. Last week, here's one of the verses we looked at, he, Exodus chapter six. Here's what he told Moses to tell the people. He said, when you go to them, tell them this. He says, I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. He says, once you leave here, folks, you're going to begin to know who I am. You're going to begin to understand who this God that we're talking about really really is. God told their founding ancestor, Abraham, He told them that if you go back to Genesis 17, he said, I'm going to, through you and your descendants, you're going to be my people. Uh, I'm going to be your God. He'd already told them that. But remember, that was 650 years before Egypt, 650 years before they were delivered. He gave this promise to Abraham. So now a lot of things have happened in 650 years. A lot of things have changed. Time has changed things. Circumstances have changed things. Locality has changed. Where they were when he said that and where they are now. Things are totally different. 650 years later, and, and they really need a reintroduction to God. They need to know who God is. Perhaps they've heard something about him, but they need to really know who this God is that, they, that they, Moses says you're gonna, he's going to be your God. Well, who is he? So that's where we pick up the journey. About two months after they leave Egypt where we've we've continued the timeline, they they go in this great victory, they cross the Red Sea. About two months after that, we find them, we find Israel at the foot of a mountain. And the mountain's called Mount Sinai, sometimes it's called Mount Horeb. And that may have not meant a lot to you when you read that, and it may not have meant a lot even to some of those people who were there. But their leader, Moses, he understood a significance in this particular mountain. Because you see, this was the same mountain, where if you read the story, he's, he saw a burning bush, and God called him. This is the exact same mountain that we're talking about. In fact, here's how, the, how Moses heard it. Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, God said, I will be with you, this will be a sign to you, that it is I who have sent you. Now notice, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So when Moses stands there with the people, they've gone two months now, now they're at the foot of the mountain, Moses is going, oh, deja vu, dude, I've been here. God told me I was coming back. Took a few years, took a while, but I'm here. I'm back where God told me to be or told me that would happen. And then what happens from then on becomes an historic encounter of the people with God. Exodus chapter number 19, verse number 17. Moses, now at the foot of the mountain, he led the people out of the camp, notice, to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. He takes them out to meet with God. Think about that phrase. Hello, my name is. Moses is taking the people even though they may have had an inkling of who this God was, they really needed a lot more information, they needed a lot more understanding, and he takes them out to meet with God. And in this let, let's make sure you get it in case you 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 haven't understood the the context of this, God introduces himself and he's going to do it in a dramatic fashion. The Bible tells us that at this point, the, the thunder rolled, the lightning was shooting out of the sky, earthquakes were happening, there was smoke and fire billowing out of the mountain. God is getting their attention. They're standing at the foot of this mountain. Moses says, I'm le- come on, guys, I'm going to lead you to meet God. And, and they're standing there before this mountain, before all of these things happening, this, this divine special effects type thing is all going on around them. Think about that phrase, to meet with God. Let, let's try to... Try to Picture the crowd with me, if you would. There's some people in that crowd who are very skeptical about what, the, what this was all about. They're, they're, they've been in slavery. They've been away from this long enough that they're not even sure about this whole God thing. They're skeptics in the crowd, guaranteed. There are some who are, might be standing there afraid. Shaking in their boots. This whole thing with, the, with all the lightning and stuff, it's kind of bringing back memories of what God did in Egypt and all those plagues and all that stuff. And they're thinking, I've heard about this God, and this God's guy, this kind of scaring me just a little bit. And then there are some who are just confused. Okay, listen, they came out of Egypt, and they didn't have a lack of gods I mean, there was, Egypt had hundreds of gods. I mean, they had gods for everything. They had the, all the plagues related to a god. Every one of the so, the, so they had heard about gods for 400 years, and they're going, so who's this god? What makes him different from all the others? So you got skeptics, you got confused, you got scared. Uh, there's probably others, but I guarantee you there was also some in there that were saying, yes, this is what we've been waiting for. This is exciting. I can't wait. We're going to finally get to meet and understand this god in a better fashion. When I read those and I think about some of those things, do you recognize that that happens every Sunday in a service just like this? I'm, setting, I'm I'm, talking to you, and I'm looking at a crowd of people, and I guarantee you all four of those are in this audience. There's some of you that are a little skeptical, not so sure about this whole God thing. You're here because you're wanting to make somebody happy, perhaps, if you're with them, and that's fantastic. I'm glad you're here. But you're just, you're just on the edge of, I'm not sure about all that. There's some of you that are scared to death either because of what you think might be coming, (laughs) what this crazy man up front's going to say to me. Well, I don't know what it is, but there's a a bit of fear. Some of you are just just flat confused. You've heard about God. You've been a part of church and religion. You've heard this and you've heard that and this God and this definition and this description, and you're just not even sure what you should believe. And some of you come in here and you're going, I can't wait to hear from God again. You see, my job, by, by simple definition, is to help us on Sundays come and meet God. That's kind of what we're here to do today. And my prayer has been all week that each one of you is going to, going to meet him in a special way today. And, and in a way that really is right where you live, and right where you need to. That's what Moses did with these people. He takes them out to meet with God, and, and now they're starting to understand who this God is. So, so with that in mind, thinking about this whole thing, not completely understanding all of it, God gives his first introduction. As best we can understand from Scripture, the people, all this million-plus people, probably up to two million, and Moses, they're all hearing these words verbally. This wasn't being transferred from Moses, as best we can understand. They, were, they, they saw the lightning and thunder all that, and now they're going to hear the voice of God, and they're going to say, he's going to say something that most of us are familiar with. Here's how he starts it. Exodus chapter 20, verse number 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. What did he promise Moses? When you come out, they will know that I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. So the first thing right off the bat, okay, I want to make sure you understand, I'm the one that Moses was talking about. I am the Lord, and I am the one who delivered you from Egypt. Now, the next several verses that they're going to hear are probably some of the most recognizable verses in all of the Bible. They're referred to by most standards as the what? The 10 Commandments. The Ten Suggestions. I mean the Ten Commandments, right? He's, tell, he's going to give them now something that will become recognizable for centuries, for years. Let's, we're not going to dive into the commandments per se, but I want to just kind of just talk about them just for a second. What were the commandments all about? Why were they given? There's a lot of reasons, and I don't want to give you three that I want to make sure you understand that wasn't the, the original, the ultimate intent. Some people think they're just a set of rules, God says, listen, here's some things, do this, don't do this. There's eight don'ts and two dos in this. Basically, it says, here's just a list of rules, make sure you keep them. And they were commandments, not suggestions, but it was so much deeper than that. Some people consider the Ten Commandments to be a great moral code for society. This is the way society is supposed to live. And and true, there are some great truths in there, but let's let's just take that for, for what it's worth. Understand that most people ignore numbers one through four, Completely, right? Because they're all about God. They're about worship to God. And then, to be honest, 5 through 10, most people can justify in some form or fashion, but that's a whole other sermon. But the point is this. They weren't written for all of society. They were written for God's people. They were written specifically to not only deal with how you deal with others within your family, but also to deal with your relationship with God. So this wasn't just a moral code. Great moral truths, but it's not just a moral code, not just something that we're to follow. We've had lots of those. That wasn't the intent. And here's the one I want to make sure you understand. They were not written to help you get to God or to salvation. They were not a path to salvation. You, maybe you don't understand what I'm saying, but there's a lot of folks, and maybe you're in that, that kind of think that as long as I'm trying to do these commandments, and I'm giving it my best shot, and I'm, I'm at least hitting eight out of ten, right, okay, and I'm better than the neighbor next door, he's about two, he's a twofer, you know, he's not even getting up to the halfway point, I, if, as long as I'm keeping ahead of the Joneses as a commandment, or as long as I'm trying my hardest, then God's going to look down and hopefully, when it all said and done, he's going to say, okay, you really tried, understand, that has nothing to do with the purpose of the commandments. They were in no way to bring you to God. Understand what we're talking about. This was God's way of introducing himself to his people. And the first way he introduces himself is he gives his Ten Commandments. So what we're seeing in those Ten Commandments is a picture, a point of who God is and what he wants us as his people to know about him. And with that in mind, let's think about a couple of things. The Ten Commandments, this meeting God. One of the things we learned, the Ten Commandments reveal God's holiness. One of the intent of these Ten Commandments was to show us that there is an absolute perfect God who has an absolutely perfect standard, a standard in which there is no fudging. There is no, he, he has no mixture of wrong. This is his standard. It's not about, you know, if I, I keep it part of the way. or I don't, He said, this is, this is my standard. These are the things to do. This is the standard of a perfect, holy God, absolute holiness. This tells us about who God is and in his absolute character, which is so important. If God even had a hint that he could could fluctuate, then he wouldn't be the God we could trust. He has to have this absolute, perfect standard, and the Ten Commandments helped deliver that to us. Now, as we move on, what what we're going to find, the people heard these commandments, and I want you to see their response. If you move over to chapter 24 of Exodus... When Moses went and he told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Now, catch what they said. Everything the Lord has said we will do. I, I would say most of you in this room would say, I see those commandments. I see what God... And I, I, am, try, I am going to do it. I haven't... I didn't do so good this week, but I'm going, this week I will do everything. Maybe you said that or you thought... they were Their commitment was everything he says we will do. And in fact... At this point, it was just verbal. The next couple verses, Moses writes down all that God has said, and then he comes back and he reads what he wrote again to them, and they hear it again. And if you move down to verse number uh, 7 of chapter 24, then he took the book of the covenant, he read it to the people, and they responded, listen, listen to this, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And then to make it even stronger, the next verse says, Moses took blood, you've got to catch this, And he sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. They not only said, we will do this, they sealed it with blood, literal blood. They sprinkled blood on the congregation. Now, some of you worry about the splash zone that I spit sometimes, but at least I'm not throwing blood, okay? (laughs) At least we're keeping it... You understand? You, can you imagine? We will do this, and to prove it, they set and let blood be splattered on them as the proof of their covenant to obey everything that God has said. See, the Ten Commandments reveal God's holiness, but what we're also going to see very quickly is what the Ten Commandments do is they also reveal our sinfulness. Because what happens in those, even that early commitment that we're going to do this, the ten. Think about this. Those 10 things did not suddenly make all those things wrong. Those 10 commandments didn't make murder wrong. It wasn't like somebody was sitting down in the crowd and he goes, oh, murder's not a good idea. I got to call off that hit on my neighbor. You know, it's not. It wasn't that kind of a thing that, that, oh, I didn't realize that. God had already said verbally some of these commandments. And we know from the Garden of Eden there was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. So now these people have a conscience that tells them some things are wrong and some things are right. God's holiness was already in play in society. All that this did was give them a verifiable list to go to and say, these we know to be against what God has said. It wasn't that they were new. What these things are doing is they're showing that you're already breaking these things. Here's God's standard. And as you look at those lists of 10 things, you know that you're already falling short of those. And Jesus even took it a step further in the New Testament when he said, understand it that if you hate someone... You're angry without a cause so much that you hate them. That's equivalent to murder. If you lust at a woman with, with lust in your heart, even without any action, you've already committed adultery. He goes on to talk about covetousness and all those other things. And what he's saying is the sin is not just in the action. The sin is where it comes from. The sin starts in the heart. And what, what these commandments did is they show us that God has a perfect standard and we don't reach it. We're not there. We're sinners before a holy God. And the commandments literally show us that in in an absolute truth. You see, the commandments were kind of like our modern-day x-ray or an MRI. When you go into a doctor and you have those pictures taken on some part of your body, they don't cause the problem, they reveal it. They look deep inside and say, ooh, you've got a broken bone, you've got a tumor, you've got something. Those things reveal the problem. They didn't cause it. The commandments didn't cause the sin. They simply revealed that the sin was already there. And they show us throughout the history that sin is within us. Here's how Paul put it in the book of Romans, chapter number 7. He said, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Well, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. I didn't mean that I wouldn't be a sinner. It's just I didn't know what the sin, put put a name to it. Now I have a name. This is what I do. This is the sin that I've caused. So let's just be honest. Just stop for a second. Question B, have you ever broken even a part of the Ten Commandments? Today? I mean, let's, let's just be honest. Between now, have you ever misused God's name? Have you ever in any way stolen or fudged or been dishonest? Have you hated anyone in a way that God says that's murder? Have you lusted? Have you coveted that neighbor's trailer or that neighbor's boat or that neighbor's, any of those, I mean, even, a, have, it, would, would you not agree with me that every one of us in here, the commandments reveal that we're sinful people? The purpose was to show that there is a holy God, but also to show that as people, we are not, we're sinful, and the law literally reveals that to us. So here's what happens in this story as we move it along. Remember, we're still introducing God, and we, we get this part, God's holy and I'm not. And Israel reveals that very clearly, very quickly. What happens, Israel, remember what they said? We will do whatever you say, God. We're going to obey. This is us. We are here for you, God. This is, we're sealing it with blood. I pinky swear, God, I'm going to do what you said, right? That's what they say in, the, in, in a very real sense. But before the 40 days are over, Within the next 40 days, Moses goes up on the mountain to get more of God's laws. He's going to write them down so he can come back and share them with the people. While he's gone, in less than 40 days, the people get impatient. They actually go to Aaron, who's the then leader. He's the the leader when Moses is gone. They go to Aaron and they say, Aaron, we're not sure if Moses is ever coming back. We need divine help. And since they still are, are unsure about this whole God thing, they said, so would you make us a God? Are you kidding me? I mean, we're, we're talking less of, about a month from when they said, "God, whatever you do." And the very first commandment was, "No other gods." Second, no idols. I mean, right off the bat, they're already na- nailing two of the commands, and it has a, the, the ink's not even dry, if you if you please, on the commandments. And, and they're saying, "Aaron, will you do this for us?" Aaron's response should have been, "Are you kidding me? No." But his response was, "Well, okay, bring me all your gold jewelry." Brought it all. They melted it down, and he carved. A golden calf. My guess, it looked a lot like the golden calf that they just came from in Egypt. One of the gods that was big in Egypt. And he builds his golden calf. And he says, now we're going to sacrifice. We're going to have a party. We're going to have a celebration. We're going, this is our God that brought us out of Egypt. And, and you're saying, what? How in the world can you go from, God, we're going to obey you, to this? Because the commandments simply reveal the heart of people. They simply show that we're already sinners It's just allowing the opportunity for it to happen in our lives. They go through all of this. They come. God God sees it all happening, obviously. Nothing gets by him. He tells Moses, listen, the people have gone astray already. You need to go down. In fact, God says, I think I'll just wipe them out and start over with you, Moses. I'm just fed up with this. Moses pleads for him. God doesn't kill them. But Moses still hasn't seen it yet. So Moses now comes down the mountain, and we pick up in this verse in chapter number 32, and in verse number 15, Moses turned, he went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law. God had given him these laws. He's holding these tablets, if they look anything like we think they do, but he's holding these tablets. When Moses approached the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, and his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf that the people had, been, had made. He burned it in fire, and he ground it in powder, and he scattered it on the water, and he made the Israelites drink it. Moses was just a little bit ticked off at this point. He breaks the tablets, grinds up the calf, throws it in the water, and says, now drink it and get it, folks. They listened to him. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had one of those game faces, but whatever face Moses had on, they didn't question it. They drank the water with the gold in it. Moses is mad. He goes to Aaron. He says, Aaron, what's up with this? <laughs> Aaron literally says, it's a miracle. I put the gold in and look, out came this calf. It's just like, are you kidding me, Aaron? From that point, listen, folks, 3,000 people almost immediately died from punishment by the sword. God sent a plague. Others died. He said that the neighbors, the, the surrounding nations were laughing at this group of crazy people in the desert. God's name was being defamed. God is, is, and Moses stands before him. And this is is less than 40 days from the point in which they said, God, we will obey you. So I don't know about you, but my question now comes, if I'm trying to learn about God, what's God going to do now? I mean, he was very clear. These are my commands. This is how holy I am. The people within a few days have already defied it. So what, God, are you going to do now? I mean, they saw thunder and lightning when he was just given the commandments. What's he going to do at this point? When the dust literally settles, we come to chapter 34. And if you have your Bibles or you have your story this morning, that's where I want us to focus. It's page 68 in the story. And, and I want you to see what happens next. We have no doubt that what they did was wrong, God has already said he's very displeased. Moses is angry. This, this chaotic mess. And what is God going to do now? Chapter 34, starting at verse 1. The next day the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I'll write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Down to verse 4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, and they went up and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, As the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Now look at this next verse. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, and he proclaimed his name, the Lord. Now I want to stop right there. After all this stuff has happened, now we have a picture of God literally standing next to his servant. And he said, Moses, I want you to hear more about who I really am. Hello, my name is, well, I am holy but I want you also to get a full picture of who I am. And he tells us in this next verse, he says to to Moses, and he passed in front of him, Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents of the third and fourth generation. Folks, if there's a verse that that you could memorize, I would encourage you to memorize the meat of those two verses. Of who he says, I am God, I am God compassionate, gracious, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love, forgiving sin, yet the guilty do not go unpunished. Think about what God is saying. You want to know who God is? He is absolutely holy. That never changes. Absolutely perfect. But when it comes to dealing with people like us who mess up on a daily basis, this verse is critical for us to understand about who God is. After hearing these words, look at the very next verse. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worship. When Moses realized, after all these people had done, God now shows a side of himself that in Scripture, even though we know it's there, has not been verbally said yet. This is a side of God who Moses and these people needed to see. And his response was, God, this is too much. And overwhelmed, he falls in his face and he worships God. Now I want us to talk about that verse, those two verses. And I want us to help leave here understanding a little better of who this God is. His holiness, we know that's what the commandments are all about. He shows his holiness, and he shows that we'll never meet them, and that we're sinful people. But what do we learn now from God? To know the Lord, and here's what I want you to grab from these verses, is to know, first of all, perfect justice. Now see, we don't get perfect justice. We may try, Lawyers, doctors, uh, uh, judges, people, uh, we we try to be just, but we don't understand justice. We lean more towards if something's fair or not, but that's so subjective. We don't understand justice. Listen to the last part of those verses again. It says of God, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents for the third and the fourth generation. No matter how hard we try, we're never going to understand justice, but you cannot forget the fact that we're talking about a holy God. We also never completely comprehend his holiness. God cannot turn a blind eye to sin. That would defy his holiness. He cannot say, well, that sin's okay or let it go. God promises the guilty will not go unpunished. No one ever gets away with anything. That The thing that your mom used to tell you as a kid, it it really is true. That be sure your sins will find you out because God sees it. His holiness demands that something has to be done about sin, and he promises part of God is absolute justice. I will not let the guilty go unpunished. But in these two verses, there's two maybe issues or problems, and I want to address them head on because you, you may have already asked a question. Let me look at the end of this verse. He says something very, very important. He said he will punish children for the sin of their parents. Now now I'm not about whether you like that or not. I, I want us to make sure we understand that, because just looking at that verse, if you, there's another verse of Scripture, and it looks like these two come in contradiction to each other. Let me give it to you. Ezekiel 18:20, God says, "The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child." What he's saying is, "Your kids will not be held guilty for your sins." They're going to be held accountable for their own actions. They're going to be held accountable for what they do. You do the crime, you do the time, right? They'll be held accountable for their own stuff. But doesn't that directly conflict what we just read about how he, what he's going to do with the third and the fourth generation? Let me give you one more clarification and see if it helps us understand. In the Ten Commandments, God said this, Exodus 20, verse 5, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. But notice this phrase, of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's what God's truth is trying to get us to understand. Parents, uh, kids are not, we're not going to be held guilty for the sin of our parents. We are held personally responsible. And so he, what he's saying is you'll be punished if you hate me and you'll be punished if you love me. You have, or you will be rewarded if you love me. The point is it comes down to personal accountability. But what this verse is telling us is parents, we have a so somber responsibility that even though your kids will not be held guilty for your sins, many of the bad choices they make parents, let's be honest, they do it because of what we've done. They see us, and they just reenact what they saw mom and dad doing. What that third and fourth generation is talking about is the cycle of sin that goes into generations of family, and it takes the dickens to break some of those cycles because we just simply keep following. And God says, you sin, parents. And though your kids have to make their own choices... Some of those choices are because of the cycle and we pray to God that we'll be the generation that breaks some of those cycles and we'll be the generation that says, I'm not gonna do what mom and dad did. I'm gonna break the cycle and be rewarded for what I'm following God. But the point is true that our sin does affect future generations. It does affect those following us but we're each held accountable for our own sin and our own, our, our own rewards. But there's a second question and it comes to, to me it's kind of obvious as you read through it. On one hand, we're going to read, God says he forgives. But on the other hand, what he says is the guilty will not go unpunished. So on one hand, he says he lets the guilty off. And on one hand, he says he he forgives the guilty. And on the other hand, he says, but the guilty will be punished. So the question is this, which guilty gets forgiveness and which guilty does not? Which guilty does not see the forgiveness come and which guilty is, which one's forgiven? How does that work? as you go through the scriptures from here on out, this particular verse becomes a verse repeated over and over again. God gracious, God loving, God forgiving. You'll see this repeated in the Psalms. You'll see it it repeated through the prophets. And two of the prophets help us get an understanding of what this literally means. Joel, I'll give you the example. You can look in Jonah later, but Joel gives us this. Look what Joel says. Return to the Lord your God. Now notice, now he repeats For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. But notice the condition. How does that happen? When you return, when you relent. It's the other word for repent. When you see your sin and you turn from your sin and you turn to God, repentance is the key. When does forgiveness come? Well, God sets the paradigm in place. Recognizing your sin and turning away from your sin, repenting and turning to God will find forgiveness. When, when the guy that is hearing this hears this again, there's probably no better person in all of Scripture to understand forgiveness than Moses. When we're first introduced to Moses in Exodus chapter number two, one of the first things we see Moses do is he kills a man. And then he runs for his life. Now what, what is God going to do with that? You see, we don't know what happens in the next 40 years. We know at that point he's 40, he's 80 when God calls him. So there's 40 years of silence. We literally do not know what happens in those 40 years. But somewhere in those 40 years, something changes in Moses, because when he comes back and he has that conversation with the burning bush, he is now not a, a man running from his sins. Somewhere in there, he understood what it means to repent and to have forgiveness, because what we find in chapter 33, that Moses is the first man in Scripture to ask God for forgiveness. Chapter uh, 32 and verse 32, he says to them, God forgive their sins. That's the first place in Scripture we see that mentioned. We know God is forgiven, but that's the first time it's mentioned. Somewhere Moses learned that this God, even when you do the stupidest things, is a God who will forgive if you're willing to repent and to come follow him. Here's what we understand. God is absolutely, perfectly, sin to go unpunished, but forgiveness comes to those who repent. Which leads us to our second thought. To know the Lord is to know unlimited hope. To know hope that has no boundaries. If you think about what happens in chapter 34, just the fact that Exodus 34 exists in the Bible is a proof of the mercy of God. After all Israel said and promised and then as quickly as they defied it and basically just threw all the commandments out the window and now you have chapter 34 where God proclaims his love and forgiveness. That in itself is proof that there is a merciful God. What do I know about God when I mess things up? What can I learn about God when I know that I have done and I have broken whatever God has told me not to do? What do I do when I have messed things up? Look what He tells Moses, and I love this verse thirty-four, one. He tells him as you start the chapter, Moses, chisel out two stones, stone stone tablets, excuse me, chisel out two stone tablets like the first one, and then notice what He says at the end of the phrase, which you broke. Remember that, Moses? I made some perfectly good tablets. And now they're in pieces, so you got to make two. Understand, I, I don't think God was scolding Moses. He wasn't saying, would you be more careful this time? It wasn't about that. I, I don't think in, a, in any way, because he understood God himself was angry. He understood the wrath. He understood that. Why would he show this, this interest in these, in these broken tablets? Understand, folks, these broken tablets now become a symbol of the broken lives of people, of the broken relationship that we have with God. God is holy. We are sinners. And that relationship is busted all the pieces. So God, what he's doing when he has Moses create these two tablets is he's saying, but I am a God of second chances and third chances. And for, I am a God who understands that I am holy and you are not. And when you mess up, what am I going to do? Well, let's start. Here, build these, carve these two new tablets, and let's see what happens. And then take us back to our memory verse. Look at this one more time. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord. That's the same word Yahweh both times. He repeats it, Yahweh, Yahweh, the self-existent, the, the one who, is, who, who needs no one else, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then he says, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Here's what I found true in, in counseling people and talking to people about faith and truth. Often there are two extremes. And sitting in this room, there are probably these two extremes. There are th- some folks who believe they're unforgivable. What they have done is too bad. And even if God does forgive, it, he'll never really, rest- they just feel like it's, it's too far gone. But on the other hand, there are some who believe that forgiveness isn't that big of a deal. I can get it whenever I need it. I just kind of sin and ask for it. It's not a big deal. It's not such a bad thing. It's not a it's not a bad trick and you've got these four, you've got these these two extremes. I had two people in my church, in one of my churches before one was named Maggie, one was named Joe, and they were perfect examples of that. Maggie just couldn't get the handle on the fact that God forgave her, never felt worthy, always down it, it just completely a mess, could never completely grasp the fact that God could forgive her. Joe, on the other hand literally told me said i don 't need this whole thing of salvation i 've never really done anything that bad you 've got two extremes and probably everybody in the middle but i want i don't I don't, this morning, I want to make sure you understand how big forgiveness is, but also understand that as people, we are, listen to how God describes himself. Hello, my name is God. Listen to what he says. And I'm going to start, there's five basic things he says. I'm going to start right in the middle, because I think everything kind of hangs off this middle one. The middle one is this, he's abounding in love and faithfulness. Abounding is that word not limited, unlimited. It means, it means just overflowing. It means to the extent. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can deplete it. it. You know, our federal government thinks that they have this resource because if we're out of money, they just print more, right? But the problem is they don't have anything supporting that. When God says it's abounding, he's got everything behind it, all the resources to support it. He is abounding in, and then the two big words, love, kindness, goodness, absolutely your best interest he he overflows in those things and in faithfulness which is another word for truth it's the other word for veracity it's the other word for reliability it's the other the understanding that god there's abounding. there's no end to his love and his truth and his faithfulness and we can count on that that's how all this to me that's the kind of the hinge there's a picture i want you to see and i want you just to, to picture this in your mind that's a fountain in Chicago called the Buckingham Fountain. And as I thought about this this week, a picture like that just kind of, could you turn the lights off just for a second? I want to just see this. I want you just to think about what what that, what that looks like and that God's amazing love and faithfulness just bursts out. There's just no stop. But look what that water does. It just covers everything. It just flows down and it just, And and I want you, if you get one picture in your head, this is a picture of the fountain of forgiveness. The fact that no matter what we've done, and Israel's messed up, and yet no matter where they are, this God says, I am abounding in love and faithfulness. Think about that just for a minute. Just the beauty of what it means that God's love is that big and that great. But he doesn't stop there. I think he could. We could go home pretty happy. But he actually adds some more words. If you keep reading, and we'll have the lights back on, he, he goes on and describes, so as that water flows, here's what he says, I'm a compassionate and gracious God. Compassionate, merciful, your version may say. It literally can be translated, he's full of compassion. Oftentimes in the New Testament, we see Jesus with the phrase, he was moved with compassion. I think one of the best definitions of compassion is simply a love that is moved A love that is is moved to the point where it does something. You can have pity and you can say, Oh, that's too bad. Or when the pity moves you to do something about it, that moves into compassion. And it's the idea of of God sees our desperate need, sees our sinfulness. He sees His holiness and our need, and He's moved with compassion. He's full of compassion for us. He loves us, and He wants the best for us, and He says He's gracious. This word, gracious, is one of my favorite Bible words. It literally means to bend. Or to stoop. It's the idea of someone in authority, someone in power and prestige, bending down to the world of someone who can't reach to theirs. A king reaching down to a, a poverty person, a, a, a person, a, a big person like myself reaching down to a child. It's bending to stoop into a world that they can't get to you. That's what God did. You can never get to God. So what does he do? He bends. He's gracious. He stoops to your world to pick you up to word that's forgiveness. Look at some of the other words. He says he's slow to anger. He doesn't have a hair trigger on his temper. Because, folks, if he did, it would have ended in, with Adam and Eve. It would have ended with Cain. It wouldn't have lasted a 1,000 years before Noah came. It would have happened like that. He would, but let's be honest. If God had a hair trigger, would you be sitting here? If God's anger was just, oh, you messed up, you're out of here, how many of us would not be in this room? I think that one of the greatest things I thank God for every day is just his patience for me. Just the fact that I messed up again, God, and God says, I know it, and I'm, 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 not, I'm slow to anger. Notice the next words. He says, and he maintains love to thousands. It means to guard, to protect, to persevere. His love never fails, as 1 Corinthians tells us. There is never an end to how much he loves you. And then the last phrase, which we're talking about, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Remember, it's not that God overlooks our sin or God turns, or God gives us a pass on sin. God is fully aware of our sin, but he gives us an alternative, and it's called forgiveness. And forgiveness, by definition, means to lift off, to carry, to take the, take the burden of the sin off of someone. There's, I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say to me, after they've accepted Christ, their first response is, it's like a burden was lifted off my shoulders. That's forgiveness. It's taking that burden of guilt and sin and shame and lifting us off, God says, that's who I am. I'm gracious, compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love for thousands, and forgiving. And notice he uses three words, transgressions, rebellion, and sin. Wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Why is that significant? Those are the three Hebrew words for sin in the Bible. So understand what God is saying. One's perversion, one's stubborn rebellion, one is just missing the mark, acting in sin. What is God saying to us? He's saying it doesn't matter what your sin looks like. It doesn't matter what category your sin may find itself, how bad you think your sin is or someone else thinks your sin is. I've covered them all. I'll forgive it all. There is no category of unforgivable sin. The only sin that's unforgivable is the one you refuse to repent of and turn to God. God says, I will forgive. I will lift the burden of all sin. That's who God is. So now do you understand why Moses... Verse 8, bowed and worshiped God. He bowed on his face and he worshiped God. When he realized, he knew what Israel should have had and he now realizes what God is offering them. Truly a, a fresh start. So this morning, I want to close with a reminder and an invitation for all of us in this room. You see, when Jesus Christ came, approximately 1,500 years after this event. When Jesus Christ came into this world, he came to confirm that God is just who he said he was. He came to confirm that God is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He's maintaining love to thousands, and he's forgiving all transgressions, all wickedness, all sin. Jesus came and he confirmed that when he gave his life on the cross. Jesus is a living portrait of our memory verse for today. When you see Jesus, you see all of that of God in one. You see the holiness of God in that God had to punish sin, and when Jesus hung on the cross, that was God's holiness, meeting out the punishment of sin. But at the same time, through that death, he offers us life, and he offers us gracious, compassionate forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. If anybody ever asks you or ever questioned the fact of, how do I know that any of this is true, just remind them. Jesus lived it, and he sealed it when he died on the cross for me. When Jesus died on the cross, he gave us the perfect picture of what this is. Ephesians chapter number 1, verses 7 and 8. Listen to what Paul said. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. You see, in God, we have a perfect balance. He's absolutely holy, and we're not. But he's also absolutely abounding in love and mercy and grace. And if we turn from our sin and turn to God, we will experience, and I love the word that Paul uses, the grace that he lavished on us. That's almost the same word as abundance in the Old Testament. It means extravagant. It means over the top. It means it's more than I deserve. It's the grace that God lavishes. He pours that grace out on us when we receive the forgiveness of Jesus on the cross. So here's my invitation. Turn from your sin today. Turn to Jesus and find his grace available to lavish over all the things that we have done. Have you accepted his gift of salvation? Do you stand here today knowing that your sins are forgiven and that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you experienced his forgiveness? Are Are you one today who doesn't, You can believe you're forgivable. God says he'll forgive it all. His grace can be lavished on all of our sins. Or maybe you're one that doesn't realize how important this is. You're really still sitting here saying, I'm not really sure I get it. I don't see what I've done that's so bad. And God says, in view of my holiness, you're a sinner and you need a Savior. Have you recognized that? Let me ask those of you who know Christ, can you think in your mind right now of a name of someone who needs to know this? A loved one, a friend, a co-worker who needs to know the love and forgiveness of Jesus. And if nothing else happens but this, how many of us followers of Christ, being reminded of how big his forgiveness is, need to just bow our heads in a special way today and worship the one who gave us forgiveness? Let's do that. Let's bow our heads this morning. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. God introduces himself. He says, I'm holy. Nothing changes that. Absolutely perfect. And you as humans, you're not. So what do you do with that, God? Well, I also am compassionate and gracious, abounding in love and faithfulness, slow to anger, maintaining love and forgiving all sin, Have you experienced that forgiveness today? Do you know today that your sins are forgiven, that you're one of God's children? If not, today, would you receive this gift of salvation through Jesus Christ? Call out to him and say, God, I get it. I'm a sinner. I do not meet your holy standard, but God, I believe Jesus died for me. Please save me. I want to follow you with the rest of my life. Would you repent and follow him today? Or Christians, have we forgotten just how big this is? Maybe today it's just to remind us, God, thank you for your forgiveness. God, I worship you today because of your forgiveness. Help me never to take that for granted or to assume upon it, but to love you, to follow you even deeper today because of the great forgiveness you've given me. Father God, thank you. Thank you for introducing yourself to us, giving us a better picture to understand you are holy, God. You have a holy love for us, a love that is beyond comprehension. And, Lord, I wish I could save anyone in this room, but I can't. I pray that this morning your word has spoken to them and they recognize their need for salvation forgiveness. And today will be the day they repent and follow you. And for Christians, that you would stir and just remind us and help us to be even deeper followers of yours because we realize what that forgiveness means share this with somebody this week. Help us, God. I pray this in Jesus' awesome and precious name. Our heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Chris is going to sing, and as he does, maybe today would be the day that you receive that forgiveness from Jesus. You leave here with your sins forgiven and your, your shame removed, your guilt taken away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Or maybe just as a servant, you want to just pray and speak to him. Chris begins to sing, if you'd like us to pray with you, please come and let us have someone. We have folks who will be coming in to pray with you. You can come or you can, as you come, we would love to show you from the scriptures what this means to follow Jesus Christ. Or maybe you just need to spend some time speaking to him in prayer. Chris begins to sing, I invite you to speak to God as he's spoken to you.